welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth. So NetHealth wants to talk about something very important, patients and their outcomes, specifically how great it is when your whole practice is rallied around a solid outcomes management program. To help you with that, they have teamed up with Photo, which is focused on therapeutic outcomes, for the Clinical Outcomes Summit, October 23rd to the 25th in Knoxville, Tennessee. Healthy, wealthy, and smart podcast listeners get a steep discount on the registration. The full summit pass is only $150, so at that rate, you can bring your whole team. Go to outcomesnerd.com and use the discount code LITZY. Now on to today's episode. Again, this was recorded live at the WCPT conference in Geneva, Switzerland two weeks ago, and I welcome Daniel Board on the show to discuss torture survivors' experience of healthcare services for pain. So Daniel Board is a specialist pain physiotherapist working in a pain management clinic at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London in the UK. Clinically, he helps people with a variety of persistent pain conditions and has a special interest in refugee health care. Daniel is also an early career researcher and recently conducted a qualitative study investigating torture survivors' experiences of health care services for pain. So in this episode, we talk about just that, torture survivors' experiences of health care services, the importance of the patient-clinician relationship and communication skills, especially with this very, very much marginalized population, and how as the therapist or as a healthcare practitioner, how to avoid burnout when servicing this patient population. I mean, this is not an easy population. They've been through more than your average person. Their pain needs, psychological needs are much different. And so Daniel goes through all of that, and I really want to thank him for taking the time out of his WCPT schedule to sit down and have this very, very necessary and very, very meaningful conversation with us here on the podcast. So everyone enjoy. Hey, everybody. I am coming to you live from WCPT in Geneva, Switzerland, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Daniel Board. Daniel's a physiotherapist in the United Kingdom, and he specializes in persistent pain. So Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. And today you had a really interesting uh, platform. So I want you to kind of tell, give the listeners a little insight into what your platform was, because like I said, you are uh, specializing in persistent pain, but you really have a n- very unique perspective. Yeah, so uh, my background is in uh, working with people with persistent pain problems, um, and part of that is that I'm lucky enough to work um, in, a, in a specialist clinic for torture survivors uh, at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in the UK. Um, so my uh, the platform presentation I did today um, was um, presenting the findings of a research study that we did last year, looking at the, looking at the experience of persistent pain in survivors of torture. Um, 
Torch Survivors are uh, kind of an under-recognized group. Um, they have a variety of uh, psychological, physical and social um, kind of consequences and burden as a result of torture. Um, for example, persistent pain rates exceed 80% in survivors of torture. Um, rates of PTSD and depression exceed 30%. Uh, and these uh, issues aren't just standalone. Many, uh, certainly the, the torture survivors that we encounter are living in a country of exile and there are also lots of problems associated with that such as uh, seeking asylum, lack of social support and also obviously the language barriers um, and kind of what they're not necessarily knowing what their rights are with regard to accessing services within the UK. So that's the population. And what did your study specifically look at that you presented today? So what we looked at um, from the evidence base is very limited. Um, uh, there was a, a Cochrane review last year that looked at interventions for managing pain in torture survivors, and they found that there was no evidence to refute or support any intervention currently for managing persistent pain. Clinically, we see, as I said, quite a complex population, and typically outcomes from treatment aren't great. Um, we also find it quite difficult to engage them within our services. We have high sort of failed attendance rates, and 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 that really affects their ability to to access and benefit from healthcare. So the study that we looked at, or the study that we did was uh, a study looking at what torture survivors experiences of pain services in the UK is like. So often uh, torture survivors, generally the first place they go to is their GP with a pain problem, but they would also, uh, the participants in our study um, had seen GPs, they'd seen physiotherapists, pharmacists, they'd been referred to trauma and orthopedics, cardiology, rheumatology, um, and that in itself uh, posed a number of issues. So the first, one of the first things we found was that actually um, there was a there was a big confusion over or a lot of confusion from the from the survivors of torture's perspective over what their diagnosis was. So because they'd seen lots of different healthcare professionals, um, they were they were often confused. Uh, so for example, one of the quotes in our study was um, one said you have fibromyalgia, one said you had PTSD, another one said a slip disc. Um, so all of these things they don't necessarily mean a lot to the patient, and it can often leave them confused. So that was the first thing that we found. And with a with a finding like that and like the confusion of the patient, is that a reason that maybe why they're not seeking out physical therapy or or maybe why they drop off? Um, yeah, I think to be honest, I think there's a number of reasons uh, why they why they might not engage very well. Um, I think there's a couple of issues with with diagnosis, and we'll maybe start with that. Um, there was a dis one of the things we noticed in the study was a really overly biomedical approach um, to diagnosing and treating pain, which isn't um, isolated to torture survivors. It's it's widespread, but it, certainly with this group, that was um, that was relevant. So participants receiving diagnoses like degenerative disc disease or disc derangement, these were things that were noted in our study. Um, and e even if they didn't fit necessarily with the, with the, with the participants' um, picture of pain, so they might have had widespread pain or pain that didn't fit that specific diagnosis, um, that, that does a couple of things. Um, first of all, providing a diagnosis which doesn't necessarily fit the clinical picture, um, it, it takes away, I think ownership of being able to do anything about it so by saying you've got disc derangement that's going to instill fear that's going to take away any kind of um, ability that they might perceive they have to change their situation um, so that was one of the things with diagnosis the other important thing we found was that there was a distinct lack of recognition of torture experience when diagnosing pain um, so 
if torture was um, recognised, often it was done so. The, the word that came up quite a lot in the study was that participants had a biopsychosocial overlay, which in itself is a pretty ambiguous term. Um, and there was a real lack of recognition of the affective and cognitive components of a pain experience and how torture experience might influence that within a pain experience. So I think that that would also that would affect how they engage with services because I think it takes away some of the ownership by providing that kind of diagnosis. I think the other thing is that it's not as simple as there's not one thing that, that, that is the problem or with us engaging this population. Um, as I said, uh, rates of PTSD and depression are very high. Um, our participants said that they uh, struggle to engage with services often because they either lacked motivation to, to get to hospital um, or um, they were in too much pain to complete their physiotherapy exercises, for example. So those were a couple of things. Um, and I think there's also one of the things that, that we found is that there's a bit of a, one of the problems that we think then as a, as a finding from the study was that there seems to be not necessarily a, a, a dualistic um, a dualism on the part of the clinicians. I think that's probably a little bit outdated given what we know about current pain understandings. Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think there still is that perhaps a dualistic um, tendency in the organisation of services, particularly in the UK, um, and I'm sure it applies to other countries as well, that if you have a physical problem, you go and see the physical services. If you have a mental health problem, you go and see the mental health services. And I think that leaves populations like torture survivors who present with a really complex mix of all of these factors in quite a precarious position. So, for example, they might come to a pain service or see a physio um, and they might say, oh, you've, you, you look like you're really struggling with PTSD. Let's get you some help with that and then come back and see me. So then I'll get referred to a psychological service, but they might struggle to engage with the psychological service because of the pain that they're in. Um, uh, and yeah, so it just seems to be... Um, I think the service provision we have at the moment isn't well suited to this population. And so are these, uh, is this population, they're not um, being treated collectively? So if they're going to see, let's say you for pain, they'll see you. And then if they're referred to psycho psychologists or psychiatrists, they stop seeing you and go see a psychiatrist or psychologist? It's not happening at the same time. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and come right back with Daniel's thoughts. Let's talk about something important, patients and their outcomes. If you love to nerd out on this kind of talk like I do, the best industry event around outcomes management is happening from October 23rd to the 25th, and it's the Clinical Outcomes Summit. It's hosted by Photo, but it's not just for Photo clients. It's a gathering of everyone who believes in the power of outcomes management to drive change for patients, clinicians, practices, and payers. And the best part, healthy, wealthy, and smart podcast listeners get a steep discount on the registration. The full summit pass is only $150. At that rate, go ahead and bring your entire team. Go to www.outcomesnerd.com and use the discount code LITZY. That's L-I-T-Z-Y. Hope to see you there. So at the moment, no, not, not in, the, in the general health okay. services. Um, I think, it's, I think the, the, the key thing with any care and specifically with this population is it, it's very individualized. Um, each of their particular problems or the things that are affecting them are very individualized. So for example, we might have someone who gets referred to the pain clinic that I work at um, and they might really be struggling with their um, with their mental health they might be really um, struggling with PTSD having uh, regular flashbacks and what we try and do is assess the weight of the various physical psychological and social components and help them kind of 
almost line it up as in what do you think what do you think is the most important thing to get sorted mm. first do you think you'll be able to engage with the pain service if actually you've got all this other really difficult difficult mm-hmm. stuff going on so for those people, we might say go and engage with a community with a community mental health team, get some help with the, the, the PTSD, and then come back. But that being said, I, th- I think that doesn't mean that people who are undergoing sort of significant psychological distress can't engage with pain services. Um, so what we've started to do, we've just set up a a, a specific exercise class for this group. Um, of people which is psychologically supported so myself and one of my psychology colleagues um, we we've kind of paired the approach right down to keep it simple and actually say kind of we understand you're really struggling with your pain problem we can try and help you uh, or try and help it impact you less so actually setting some goals with you we use the patient specific functional scale as a really nice outcome measure of people going what do you want to do oh, i'm really struggling to bend over i can't play with my kids i can't climb stairs okay great let's see if we can start doing that and i think um what well this is slightly off on a tangent pain education is is a really important part of that but i think sometimes it gets lost in translation particularly I was just gonna ask that yeah, yeah i was just going to ask if it is a language barrier talking about pain education we know that we can simplify it not dumb it down but we can simplify it but if there is this language barrier that gosh that must make it so much harder it is really really difficult and there is some really nice work being done the evidence base is limited but there is some really nice work being done um april gamble uh who is a who is a researcher who i've met here at the conference mm-hmm. um has done some really nice work looking at uh uh, pain education um, in groups within their cultural setting and has come up with a, a variety of different tools um, that can be uh, or culturally accessible tools that can be used so she's definitely a person a good person to speak to um, I think what what we try and do in the in the clinic is find one very simple metaphor that we can use with patients so I'll talk a lot about the volume on your nervous system being really high or I don't know when you when you're assessing you you find something that works course, for them yeah and then when we're doing stuff in vivo kind of let's do some exercises what's showing up for you kind of what thoughts are coming into your head mm-hmm. how that might be a barrier and that's where the psychologist is really helpful but then looking at reassurance lots of reassurance and actually okay you're not damaging yourself it's just that volume knob on high um, and I will mimic turning up a volume uh, knob about a million times a day I think with my uh-huh. patients uh-huh. Um, and yeah it seems to work well for a group um, but again, uh, there's, you, we can't be prescriptive and actually it doesn't work with everyone. And we still need to look at other ways of engaging that group that it's not necessarily working for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the g- great thoughts. Thank you. And w- anything else? Uh, did we miss anything else from the, out, from the study? Um, so I guess the key things, I'll summarize them because I, I can remember them because we just talked about them. I guess the key things were that there was a, a distinct lack of recognition of torture experience when diagnosing and treating pain. Um, there was something which we haven't overly covered, which was the kind of um, the, the, the patient clinician relationship. I, 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 we're going to touch on that in a second. I, that was yeah. my next question, but go ahead. Um, so we'll, we'll hold that one. Um, and then the last thing was the current organization of healthcare services and how that's not necessarily conducive to such a complex population. Yeah, that my next question, if you didn't bring it up, was going to be, how do you as a therapist, how are you able to connect, number one? And number two, is there a burnout rate for the therapist working with people um, in this population? Because if you're an empath, let's say, someone who's very, very empathetic, I would think this would be a really t- 
tough group to work with until you kind of get your bearings with them. So can you kind of touch upon the, on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, starting with the, your question about the, the patient kind of clinician relationship and how you, uh, I guess, how you foster a, a kind of a, a good therapeutic relationship. Um, I think I think you can probably overcomplicate it a little bit. I think from a therapist perspective, I think one of the key things that we have as physiotherapists is we're very good at talking to people and we're very good at helping people um, kind of be open. And I think actually what physios in the clinic, when we spend time with people, we're often the first sort of people that they might have told about their specific problem. Um, I think we're really lucky, I'm really lucky that I'm able to work with psychologists so if there's anything that is really significant they're, they're on hand and I can help or they can help me rather. But I think, the, I think as physios certainly when I was uh, not working in pain I think we look at mental health as a bit of a Pandora's box and I think there is a fear among some therapists of going well I don't know, I don't, I don't want to ask the question about your mental health or how your depression is or whether you've been tortured, for example, because I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do with that information afterwards. So if I get on the impression of you being in low mood and then I have to, and then you tell me that you've got some suicidal thoughts, then I've got to act on that and that's scary. Mm-hmm. So I think there, I think personally myself, I used to be perhaps that way inclined. Um, but actually, I, don't, I think I think actually, we're, as I said, we're very good at talking. A lot of what we do is is, is talking as a profession, um, and I think actually, just having a really good listening ear to someone, being able to say the things that come naturally to you with patients. So, um, not acting in shock at someone telling you what's happened to them, or avoiding questions about things that might be difficult and then dealing with whatever it is that comes up mm-hmm. and that that probably will have an element of you knowing what your support processes are within your service so we have a really good pathway for suicidal ideation for example um, but yeah I think that patient clinician relationship is really really important and I think we just as therapists we've got a really good chance to just be open and, and, and talk to patients in the same sentence though, not with Torch Survivors specifically, one of the things in the study was that actually some people really wanted to tell you about their experience and some people didn't. Some people were really avoidant of it. And I think it's just being careful that you're not um, overstepping pushy. about, yeah, not being too pushy, just being a, a kind of a really sensitive approach is important. Um, and then your other question. So the other question was, as the therapist, how do you protect yourself from burnout, from feeling just so empathetic towards these people that you're taking it home with you at the end of the day I guess there's a couple of things Um, I'm very lucky as I said that I work with a a really good team of physios psychologists doctors nurses um, and I would feel very comfortable being able to say or talk about anything that I was worried at with them I think uh, sadly you do get a bit um, used to those conversations at times so I think they do affect you less but inevitably, you're going to hear stuff which is which is horrendous. And I think the key thing, in the same way that you would do with any other kind of mental health problem, is not keeping it bottled up. And actually, mm-hmm. uh, if you need support, being able to talk about it um, with your colleagues to get some support if you felt that that was that was needed. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. Well, I mean, I have to say, it's. I think it's a wonderful service that you're providing for these for this group. It's not easy. Um, I have never worked with that population, so I can't put myself in your shoes. Um, but I, I, I admire it greatly because these are a truly marginalized group of people who really need the care. So congratulations to you and your clinic on, on doing this. Oh, thank you. I mean, yeah, I, there's, I think this population encounter physios every day. I think we're just lucky that we've got a service which is nicely set up to, to right. help the people. Um, but yeah.
All right, so I have one last question before we finish. Well, two actually, but we'll start with one. And it's a question that I ask everyone. So knowing where you are now in your career and in your life, what advice would you give to yourself as a new grad straight out of physio school? Very, very good question. Um, as a new grad, okay, I'm gonna uh, probably the, the key thing is say yes to everything, opportunities. Um, uh, a good uh, physio colleague of mine, Dave Reese, um, when I was applying to do the, the the masters of research we did last year, I was unsure. I kind of had that imposter syndrome, and I think mm-hmm. we often feel that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said a really good a good thing to me, just lean in. So any of those kind of experiences, which might seem scary like presenting at a conference or being interviewed for a podcast or or whatever it might be in your professional life whether that be clinical or research Mm -hmm. I think yeah just take any opportunity to 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 develop and learn from from people that perhaps know more than you yeah great advice and then lastly where can people find you if they have questions they want to follow you on social media where can they find you um so yeah so I'm I'm relatively active on Twitter um my Twitter name is Bored Dan which is B-O-A-R-D-D-A-N Um, that's probably the easiest way to get me as well. Perfect. And just so all the listeners know, we'll have links to your clinic and links to everything at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So you can go over there, one click, and it'll take you to anything if you want more information. So Dan, thank you so much for taking time out of your day at WCPT. Thank you very much. It was really nice. And everyone, thanks for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. A huge thank you to Dan Board for a great discussion on a topic that, quite frankly, needs more ears on it. So thank you, Dan, for talking about your research. And of course, thanks to NetHealth for sponsoring today's episode. So NetHealth is teaming up with Photo, which is focused on therapeutic outcomes for the Clinical Outcomes Summit in Knoxville, Tennessee, October 23rd to the 25th. So you can hear success stories, case studies from your peers about leveraging outcomes data for deep patient engagement, thoughtful business practice, clinician education, optimizing revenue, and more. Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast listeners get a steep discount on the registration. The full summit pass is only $150. Go to www.outcomesnerd.com and use the discount code LITZY. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.